Welcome to lecture two on Manuel Kant's The Critique of Pure Reason, uh, titled the, the Critical Problem and Synthetic A Priori Judgments. The first part of that, The Critical Problem, briefly touched on in the, on the, in the first lecture, this you know, the context of the critique, the, the project of the critique, what it's trying to solve. Um, but behind this is a problem. Obviously, there has, if there's a project, there has to be a problem there for Kant. And this is the critical problem. You know, what is the real thing that Kant's trying to sort of answer here? And synthetic a priori judgments, I'll get to these terms later. This is to do with epistemology, how we know what we know, how we understand what we understand, and the ways in which we understand it. So all these terms here, synthetic a priori and judgments, all relate to the way in which we understand things. Now, the, there is some recommended reading for this. This is all the Hackett editions again. Uh, I recommend reading the introduction to the second edition of the Critique of Pure Reason. I recommend reading pages 119 to 125 of the, the Prologonomena. And I recommend reading Kant's letter to Marcus Hertz, uh, which is page 117 to 123 of that same edition of the Prologonomena. Um, now, I'm actually going to begin with this letter. Um, so, Kant out, you know, this critical problem that I'm talking about, Kant outlines what the critical problem is in this letter to Marcus Hertz. Um, which has become known as the key to all metaphysics because it's it's this rare, accessible piece of writing from Kant which exists for us to read. And, you know, whether or not it, it doesn't go into the nitty-gritty arguments, it doesn't really prove anything, but it does outline the problem which Kant is trying to address uh, very as, as simply as Kant really gets to at any point. So what is this problem? The problem is regarding whether or not objects conform to our senses or our senses conform to objects. Um... For instance, when I look at a tree, am I seeing the real tree, in which case my senses would conform to the object? That is to say, there's a tree out there, it is objective, it is the object, therefore my sense, senses um, conform to that thing. Or, when I look at a tree, am I getting a representation? That is to say, the object conforms to my senses and not my senses to the object. So you see that the object conforms to my senses because it has to be synthesized in some manner before I sort of apprehend it. So th this is this is the problem here is objectively objects conform to our senses or do senses conform to objects? And you know this idea that the the very act of sensing may alter the object itself due to that process of sensing. So once again, we're back to the conditions. What are the conditions that allow me to even understand, apprehend, or sense that object altogether? And do they add or alter anything to the sense that I eventually receive? The critical problem then is working out which mode is sort of true to, you know, to reality. Are we dealing with a representation? Are we dealing with the, the object itself, etc.? And Kant states in his letter to Marcus Hertz, he says, However, our understanding through its representations is not the cause of the object, save in the case of moral ends, nor is the object the cause of the intellectual representations in the mind. Therefore, the pure concepts of the understanding must not be abstracted from sense perceptions, nor must they express, express the receptions of representations through the senses. But though they must have their origin in the nature of the soul, they are neither caused by the object or nor, uh, nor bring the object itself into being. So that latter part there really begs repeating. They are neither caused by the object, nor bring the object itself into being. So there's that notion of causality that's bringing, being brought back in. And 
this once again to put it very simply back to the critical problem of the objective reality of these things is something happening in, in us in our process of synthesis which might alter them in which case we need to address whether or not we're getting the real thing or um are we actually getting this objective truth you know are we getting just the object as it is now Kant claims it is possible to understand how representations could or can relate to objects either they cause their object or they are caused by their object. But the trouble is with pure concepts of understanding. Pure meaning having no connection to the empirical. Once again, back to this idea of the critique of pure reason, which is a reasoning or a you know an understanding which has no connection to experience. This will make a lot more sense later on when we get into synthetic a priori propositions. But one idea is to, to say, well, what is a pure concept of understanding, which is in relation to objects, you know, and they're not. But so here's the question is, how can we have an understanding of objects which is not related to objects in any sense? How can we have an understanding of experience which is not related to experience? Or is not there's nothing in our understanding which is actually derived from experience? And you might be saying, well, what's an example where we understand something greater, you know, to a greater extent about experience, but we haven't actually derived any knowledge from experience. Mathematics is the key example. Um, these examples will come up again later. But for instance, if I take this computer mouse and I want to understand that it it's, you know, to the laws of gravity, I'm not going to drop it now, but if I dropped it, it would hit and I would understand from that process that, you know, this thing is heavy. It's a solid and it's heavy. But I can only do that by interacting with it in experience. Whereas mathematics, there's nothing I can do with, you know, one plus one equals two in experience. So it's this understanding, which is pure, because it's not attached to experience at all. So there's two roots, really, in the in the history of, um, you know, scholarship on Kant um, with respect to the critical problem. The analytic, which is most famously taken up by P.F. Strawson. Um, in his book, The Bounds of Sense, which I think is one of the great, you know, very well-known Kant secondaries. And The Idealist, which I think is best taken up by uh, Omri E. Allison in the book, uh, Kant's Transcendental Idealism. The analytic conclusion understands that what is experienced is of importance, right? Um, the idealist understands the process of experiencing as important. So what's the definition there? The analytic analysis of Kant's sort of critical problem would in, would see the problem as solved because what is experienced is the structure within itself already and it's the ends. Its ends are the means which to work with. So we don't need to worry for the analytic appropriation of this. We wouldn't need to worry about the, the process, the conditions. It sort of thwarts transcendentalism altogether, really, um, because you say, well, we've got to this thing, so let's deal with the structure that we can deal with, with which is what analytics do all the time, really. Um, analytic isn't really proper philosophy, but there you go. The idealist, however, is what we're dealing with. It requires further explanation, because the idealist is saying, well, we get to this conclusion, we get to objects, we get to the experience we have, but what the hell are the, the, the conditions? What led us here? You know, what allows this? We're not just going to deal with this without by just willy-nilly saying, well, this is reality. Um, and that's, that's the difference there. You know, so so it's this 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 problem of reception and how one deals with reception. If something is being received by us, for Kant, it is not what's been received which should be of interest. That's what the analytics would say. We've received this; we'll just deal with what's been received. 
the process of receiving. What allows us to receive anything? You know, let's investigate that because if we understand what allows us to receive things, then we can understand whether or not what we're actually receiving is true. So any notion of pre-critical, preordained harmony between man and his conception of reality isn't proven by empiricism or rationalism, as we, we understood from the first lecture when I spoke about Hume and a little bit on Locke um, and a tiny bit on Leibniz. They just have sort of a strict confidence in the pre-critical thought, in a way. They get to they get to these points, you know, where Hume says anything could cause anything, or Locke says that, that anything's in the intellect that, that, that has to be in the senses first. But they don't go further than this. Um, as to why, who knows? You know, as I, as I mentioned before, this actual argument goes back a long, long way, way before Hume and Locke and Kant. So Kant's introduction then of this famous notion of the Copernican revolution is a statement pertaining to the questioning of common sense realism and scepticism. Both of which centre man is in, in, in his assumptions about reality. So pre-Copernican or pre-critical philosophy assumes all objects are real and that our experience of objects is of the objects at their most fundamentally real level. Apart from the Humean and the Lockean view, this would be like the common sense reality in terms of a centeredness in the in in the the philosophical universe, so to speak. So a lot of people talk about this Copernican revolution in different ways, and I always like to take it in the in the understanding of really thinking about what Copernicus did, which is to decenter us from the universe. You know, everything doesn't revolve around um the Earth, which I believe is the the heliocentric model. I could have got that wrong with the geocentric model. But he finally realised that the sun is the centre and everything revolves around the sun, which scientific terms, it, it changes a lot of things. But in this philosophical approach, it, it isn't enjoyed. It's it's, it's criticised because, of course, we no longer become, everything doesn't revolve around us. Every, we love it, humans. We love things revolving around us in terms of like a philosophical solipsism. And Kant is taking this other step in terms of, you know, our own experience. Not only now in the universe does everything not revolve around us, but actually our very experience, we might not even be the centre of that. And so the primary question of this, this Copernican revolution in philosophy, or this, this now critical Kantian revolution, is knowability. It's an epistemological revolution of, well, how do you know that you're in control of your experience? How do you know that what you actually receive is, is capital T, truth? And so Kant alters our relationship with both epistemology, you know, how we know things, and metaphysics. You know, so, so pre-critical philosophy unknowingly combines epistemology and metaphysics into this sort of singular outlook, and, and pre-critical philosophy attempts to inquire into the reality of objects, but it does so by simultaneously asking what is reality and how do we know reality using the presumed conclusions of one to answer to the other. So you say, well, what is reality? You know, it's this experience. That must be how we know it. Or how do we know reality? Therefore, that is reality. Um, and this actually goes back to that whole point with respect to Kant um, with Hume and Newton, Leibniz and Newton, sorry, in terms of Leibniz and Newton both subsumed the intellect and sense, the intellect and sensibility into a singular thing. Kant's big step is separating these. And this is the same separation between these two questions, which is happening in pre, pre-critical philosophy. What is reality? Um which is a, you know, a sensible argument 
what is experience, what is reality, and how do we know reality is an intellectual experience. And one of you know, pre-critically, these are subsumed into the same framework, whereas Kant splits them out and makes this this divide, stating that there is clearly some form of reality, but how we know it is fundamentally separate. There is something, there is experience that's clear as day, but how we know it may be changed by the very conditions inherent in us as the beings that we are. So if we understand, um, you know, Kant talks about the subject uh, and objects all the time. If we understand the, the for those who are watching the video, this is, this is a little bit clearer with the, the diagram that I've put up there, but I will explain it. If we understand the subject as, uh, and the object, or the subject as S and the object as O, if you like, in the realist arrow of explanation runs from S to O. Okay, the, the, the when this is the pre-critical explanation of the way in which O ultimately is, and the way that it that it simply that he is the representation of O and the O in itself. So, what I mean by the arrow is the sensing goes from the subject to the object, and nothing is happening between that. That is to say, we are looking out into the objective, um, experiential reality, and that is how it is. Or even if it isn't how it is. That's what we have to deal with, but we are we haven't assessed the conditions of that arrow and whether or not the direction of that arrow is even correct. So the direction of this arrow, pre-critically, very roughly speaking, is going from subject to object. Now, of course, that relationship is still there, but actually, I see the the, the post-critical, the critical Kantian philosophy, the Copernican revolution of philosophy, reversing this arrow, arguing in the way, arguing that the way in which the object is is not to do with the object itself nor arguably the subject itself but the arrow right the process that's happening between s and o so pre-critically you have the subject you have the, the transition between subject and object something happens there and you, you that's what you have you have the subject being looked upon the object pre-critically we don't really investigate that middle arrow that process which is going on transcendental philosophy is all about saying what happens in between the object and the subject. What happens in this arrow? Now, I've labelled this as synthesis. Um, you know, so the point is when the arrow of sort of apprehension or, you know, uh, receptibility or, or uh, sensibility comes from the object to the subject, what I mean to say is the object is out there. Maybe. The experience is there. There must be, there is something that we apprehend, right? that we receive. But, in that process of being received, it has to be filtered by our senses, by our sense organs, by our faculties, by our cognition. Therefore, we cannot say we are attending to the, the thus far, we cannot say we are attending to the, the objective thing, because our, we don't know whether or not our senses, our synthesis, our process of synthesizing this object, adds something to it, alters it in some way. Okay? Um, so moving forward, this this is when we finally get to the 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 other part of this little lecture here on synthetic a priori judgments, um, which is something everyone will hear a lot about when they you know get into Kant. So in critical philosophy, the subject constitutes its objects; it it, it produces them. 
they're produced in the way that they that that same sort of process that I was just talking about there but in that transition they are produced because they have to go through certain filters which we have in our sense organs and sensibility and we intuit them and it inherently argues then that the reality which we receive from our constitution is is that's the reality we have access to and the soul and soul reality of objects is taken as that which we can conceive but a pure understanding of it would be impossible that is to say pure once again without relating to experience that is to very simply say is we can't understand experience without conceiving and intuiting experience the problem then is a pure understanding how could how can we understand experience without having experience of it the problem then loops back round the loop i spoke about in the first lecture we have this problem. We want to understand experience. We can only understand experience from having experience of it. And our experience of it may very well be thwarted by the fact it has to be processed. So what do we do? How do we begin to answer this question? Um, Kant states at uh, A92, representation in itself representation in itself does not produce its object insofar as its existence is concerned. So we're not, you know... What's a representation then? You know, I stated that in you know we produce them, but what we're actually producing is representations. We produce this middle ground, this synthesis. So then Kant comes forward and sort of argues that this idealism then isn't a genuine idealism as some sort of alternative to realism due to the fact it isn't prim primarily concerned with the existence of things. You know, it's... This isn't an idealism in, in relation to realism. Like, realism, that is absolutely the real thing. Idealism it is it is a created reality. It's not saying that. It's this strange in-between, and this is the beauty of transcendental philosophy, is it doesn't fall into these very clear-cut camps. Hence why you have to say transcendental idealism and not just idealism. It isn't this creation of the external world which is very clear-cut, and it isn't just an acceptance of a real world. It's a transcendental idealism. Not concerned with the existence of things, but the way in which we know those things which we do experience. So Kant's exclusive, from that, Kant's exclusive concentration is on the a priori elements which make reality, and thus the ways we intuit reality. You know, the, the ways in which a priori elements make reality possible. What's a priori? It just means absolutely always necessary. There before, before anything else, it has to be necessary. So... Objects are also taken in this, this twofold sense, as appearance and as thing in itself. We will only ever know objects in their first sense. So just before we go forward to articulate that, you know, when we're talking about representations, the other word for that is appearance. I always sort of prefer to use representation. There may be some very nuanced differences between them. There is. There is differences, right? So... It's very frustrating because the differences seem so slight. We first receive appearances, and they're just appearances, and they don't really have this content. Um, and then you can argue that once they come under our understanding, but this is later lecture, so I don't want to get into it too much, that they then turn into representations. There is a difference between appearance and representations. There is one. But for the sake of these lectures, you can consider them interchangeable which many people probably wouldn't agree with but it just makes it easier and a bit more accessible in terms of what i'm now about to speak about which is the thing in itself and appearance so what we sort of apprehend 
because they have to be processed, are these representations, these representations. What's the thing in itself? The thing in itself is that reality that it's come from. So you have the thing in itself and it passes through, you know, that metaphor of um, the the sunglasses. It passes through the sunglasses, our senses, and then it's no longer the thing in itself because it had to be synthesized. And And so, once again, when we think of the word transcendental, we think of these conditions of possibility. What is it that is this making this reality that I receive possible? So transcendental idealism then would be the conditions of possibility for that idealism that we've spoken about. How is this all possible? The aim then of the transcendental critique is to show in what way are these objects possible and what conditions are needed for them to be possible. Transcendental then is what precedes all experience and makes it possible. And it, you know, once again, in relation to the transcendent, it by no means goes beyond reality. And so this question then of how synthetic a priori judgments are possible is like the most important question because it's the same one as how can we understand reality with a pure understanding, which is out without experience, which to a, to a certain degree can be argued as, well, if we no longer are within the experience, you know, that thing that has to be processed, which is why it's dubious, because we can only rely on, you know, our sense organs, hearing, taste, smell, sight, touch. If it's pure, then we have to rely on our intellect, which is an entirely different frame. Um, and this is where we, you know, this idea of synthetic a priori judgments, this is where we bring in um, these notions. So a priori, there's a priori and a posteriori. These are known as epistemic distinctions relating to epistemology, study of knowledge, how we know what we know. Uh, let me take an example of each and analyze them. Okay, so and I'll give a couple of examples. So I'll do a, I'll run through them all, and then there is a chart as well for those watching the video, and I'll run through that. So it's raining outside right now, um, or it's raining outside right now. It actually isn't, but it doesn't matter. This is a clear example of a posterior knowledge because the knowledge itself is reliant on our experience of it. We cannot know that, I cannot say that and know it without, you know, opening my curtain here and looking outside and seeing whether or not it's raining. And I have to have experience of that to know it. Whereas an example of a priori proposition would be 5 plus 5 equals 10. Um, and this, you know, this is actually a, a peculiar one, which we'll come back to, because it's not reliant on experience to be known. There's no, there's no, there's no way that I could you know, experience it. It's a purely intellectual pursuit, you see. And that's what a priori is. One relatively simple way that I, I've been taught to think about these distinctions is whether or not someone sat in their armchair would have to get up to figure out the, the, the bit of knowledge that, you know, they're talking about. For instance, the, the sum 5 plus 5 equals 10 is this internal intellectual um, process, and you don't need to get up and investigate empirical experience to figure it out. Whereas the fact it's raining outside right now is something that, you know, you'd need to get up and figure out to work out whether or not it's true. And so a posteriori means knowledge which comes after or from experience. And a priori means knowledge which comes before experience. Very simply. Um, and then, of course, you know, synthetic a priori. Okay, so we've, we've, we've spoken about a priori. So what's synthetic? Well, synthetic, there is analytic and synthetic. And they are linguistic distinctions of a sort. And they're quite alike the previous distinctions of a priori and a posteriori. Yet these are, you know, these are linguistic, as I, as I said. So 
take a couple of examples to figure these out. Brothers are male is an example of an analytic statement because it's true in virtue of its meaning alone. Right? What do I mean by that? That is to say, the concept brother contains the concept male, so the statement is necessarily true in virtue of the definition of brother. I haven't learned anything new there. So this 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 is this is actually called conceptual containment. Everything is contained. You know, um, all brothers are male. Okay. It's done, there's a piece of knowledge that's done. Nothing needs to be learnt there by virtue of the definitions that we've collectively given to these terms. And analytic pro- propositions are universally true, but they are uh, tautologous. You know, all bachelors are unmarried men. It's true by definition of unmarried men and bachelors. As such, one, has, one hasn't really learnt anything new. Synthetic statements are ones in which there is no conceptual containment. For instance, brothers tend to be unhappy is synthetic, as the concept of unhappy is not inherently contained within the concept of brothers. So the truth of the proposition is not a matter of these inherent definitions of the terms, but it's actually based on experience. You know, we need to go out and go, well, okay, let's talk to some brothers and find if they're unhappy. Um, And then from that, we could learn it out. But we have to have that synthetic process to do that. Um, Very roughly speaking, synthetic propositions pull together the elements, sensory data of a thing, so that you know what is going on via experience. So these are these synthetic propositions are important because it means that reason alone cannot work out the facts of the world. One cannot rationalise truth. It's going to be based on experience and as such applicable to subjectivities of the senses and the mistakes of cognition. Hence why the transcendental critique is so important is because, well, we're going to have to work things out from synthetic propositions in life. We're going to have to go out and experience things. Can we say whether this, this experience is true? And this is why, you know, we have that foundational, uh, that foundation of a criticism of science, which isn't a criticism of science in itself, because, you know, Kant would say these days, he would say, well, we've got rockets to the moon. We've got, um, you know, Elon Musk is sending SpaceX and they're coming down, and they're landing. So in experience, we this, we must be doing something right because we're making these calculations from experience. We're having these synthetic propositions where we learn from experience and, and, and it works out every time. The reason why Kant's proposition is important is to say, well, can what we're actually be taking, you know, is what we're taking from experience the true reality? You know, what have, uh, have the conditions altered this in any way? Um, and so Kant sort of concludes that you cannot establish the reality of an external world via such a synthetic process which is beholden to the faculties of a subject can't be sort of synthetic a posteriori because there is once again these conditions um now you can combine the distinctions and this is where we we will head into synthetic a priori for instance you could have an analytic a priori uh, statement you know a statement which is contained within itself which is absolutely like necessary it's almost it's logical by going by the chart which is all bachelors are unmarried. Great. Everything's contained. Conceptual containment once again. Cool. You could have... Um, you can have analytic a posteriori. It's a strange one. Hypothetical. Can sort of be ignored, really. Not spoken about very much. Um, you can have synthetic a posteriori. The man is sitting in the chair. All right, okay, I need to get up and check if the man is sitting in the chair. And finally, you can have the interesting one. Right, so if we go through them again, analytic a priori. It's by the definition of itself alone, the knowledge that we already have by by way of these definitions we've given to 
all bachelors are unmarried. The definition of bachelors is this, you know, single unmarried man. Unmarried means unmarried, therefore all bachelors are unmarried. There is a clear logic in that containment. Nothing new has been learned. Uh, we can have a posteriori, taken from experience, and synthetic, which is also the synthetic process of learning from experience. The man is sitting in his chair, which is an empirical proposition. Okay, this is sort of interesting, because we have to get up from our chair, we look at the experience, the man's over there and he's sitting in his chair. Now we can deem it true from experience. But what about synthetic, that is, um, drawn from experience, but a priori, that is to say, um, <laughs> I'm getting mixed up. Let me give you an example of this, okay? The example, why I said the peculiar example of 5 plus 5 equals 10 earlier. This is an example of a synthetic a priori proposition. It's much easier to give you an example than to explain the details of it. 5 plus 5 equals 10. Synthetic a priori definition, right? Knowledge that is universally and necessarily true in itself, a priori, but can still be found from experience. How does that work? How can we ever learn from experience if we don't have to experience experience? How can we take from experience absolutely universally and necessarily true knowledge from experience without having to deal with experience? Well, it's in one of the examples I've already given. 5 plus 5 equals 10. Kant argues there's nothing in the definition of 5 plus or 5 which gives us 10. So that there has to be a sin, you know, that the, the, the problem is synthetic. Something has to be processed, something has to be worked out in that 5 plus 5. You quarter that off, something has to be done there, something has to be worked out to give us 10. But it's a completely intellectual observation. There's no, we don't touch experience to do this. We can sit down and close our eyes and turn up, we can turn off all our senses and be able to do it. So here we have this strange statement, a synthetic a priori statement. Kant goes on to argue that the principles of science and mathematics contain synthetic a priori knowledge. That is, knowledge which is learned from experience, but is also necessary and universal. This fact of possibility of synthetic a priori knowledge suggests that we're capable of knowing further truths and that our reason knowledge can be expanded without attending to experience itself. So, you know, for a priori judgments, they are strict universalities. You know, there's no exception to what is, you know, predicates the object. So for Kant, the key interests is in judgments which can extend our knowledge or tell us something new, synthetic, but also a priori, you know, they have this strict universality. Every event has a cause, is universal and necessary, and thus a priori. But the predicate event doesn't inherently contain the concept of an effect and a cause, making it synthetic, right? Every event has a cause. Well, the predicate event doesn't contain the concept of a cause. So this is a synthetic a priori judgment. And of course, when you think about it in terms of that idea of an event and a cause, you then get back to this transcendental conditions in the sense that, okay, we have this synthetic a priori proposition of every event has a cause, which aren't contained within one another. And so... This goes back to the conditions. We need to, do, to understand the conditions of experience. So synthetic a priori judgments are metaphysical. They're not derived from logic or experience. Um, to just to add a few bits into these, 
mathematical and geometric judgments, such as 1 plus 1 equals 2, or a straight line is the shortest distance between two points, are also, these These are um, both synthetic. Okay, once again, 1 plus 1, uh, there's nothing in 1 plus 1 which equals 2. It's just, it, it's not there. It has to be synthetic, but it's not from experience. And the shortest distance, you know, the, the, the shortest distance between two points, there's nothing in there. You have to go between the two. You, you doesn't It doesn't contain the subject. There's nothing. There's no data in a straight line which tells us anything about it being the shortest distance between two points. Um, in B14 of the critique, um, Kant states, it must first be remarked that properly mathematical propositions are always a priori judgments and another empirical because they carry necessity with them, which cannot be derived from experience. They're either true or they're not. You don't have to get up to a. You don't have to go look at a cloud or a door to work out whether or not one one plus one equals two or whether or not a geometric proposition is true, or, you know, the circumference of a circle is true. You can work this out. So, if the possibility of objects is already assumed, empiricism, if, if, if the possibility of objects is already assumed, empiricism, there's no problem with synthetic a priori judgments, because we already understand where the synthetic knowledge is coming from, right? To solve the problem of how these judgments is possible is to solve the problem of relation between judgment an object or subject an object. So you might say, well, okay, why is synthetic a priori judgments that you know so so important to Kant? All that important? Well, when you look into it, you know, especially that the 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 proposition that I gave, every event has a cause. Well, this is so reliant on the transcendental conditions or the conditions pertaining to these two things of event and a cause that whether or not this judgment is true is completely reliant on this whole um, systematic philosophy of Kant, this critical philosophy. Um, but this lecture is just outlining these things. It will come back in, synthetic a priori judgments, but I just want to outline what they are. <clears throat> and so, you know, once again, very quick overview. A priori analytic is completely logical, completely contained. A posteriori, synthetic a posteriori, the man is sitting in his chair, is empirical, we have to go find out what it is. And synthetic a priori is a statement which is absolutely necessary knowledge, a priori, which is derived not from experience. And how can that be? How can they be? That is the question that Kant is asking. And it's not the question that I'm answering in this lecture. I'm simply outlining what they are so i do apologize for that but it will sort of be answered by the way that we, when we construct the well whether or not it's answered is up to certain interpretations but um once the foundations of the critique are built in the transcendental aesthetic and the transcendental logic we will be able to you know see whether or not this this question is answered so thanks very much for watching or listening um, and if you did enjoy, then there is a, and it, if you want the notes or if you did enjoy or you just want to support what I'm doing, there is a Patreon below. Um, so thanks very much and see you in the next lecture.